there is sometimes the case where people are maybe less concerned whether Christianity is true. They're wanting to know, is it relevant and is it good? This is going to be the topic of our conversation as I have a conversation with Professor Kenneth Samples on his new book, Cross-Examining Christianity. So, Kenneth, let's just jump straight in. Why yep. is this a, an important question? Why can't we just say, look, it's true. You should believe it. Why are we answering this question of relevance and goodness when it comes to Christianity? Yeah. You know, Ryan, 30 years ago when I was doing the Bible Answer Man um, I get a lot of truth questions. People want to know, does God exist? Did Jesus rise from the dead? What about what about Christianity versus Islam? I noticed, however, about 15 years ago that I got a lot less truth questions when I would go to the university. Students were asking, and even faculty members, I still got truth questions, but they would ask me, for example, has Christianity been good for women? Has it been good for racial minorities? What about the character of the God of the Old Testament? And I thought, wow, I, I, I think I'm seeing kind of a, a transition. It's not that people are completely disinterested in truth, right. but they really want to know, has Christianity been a good force in the world? And I would say as a philosopher, I think we're seeing somewhat of a shift from a modernist perspective to a postmodern perspective. And I think this relates so much to what just happened to me recently and why I'm so excited for this conversation. And for those of you who are listening and watching is that I just received a message where a student was having a conversation with a friend of his trying to show that Christianity was true and trying to present the arguments for Christianity and finally asked his friend and said, look, if I could answer every one of your questions and show you that Christianity is true, would you become a Christian and submit your life to Christ? And the response was, no, I, I wouldn't. Right. And you sometimes hear it. It's like, well, because I think God is evil. I think God is not good or whatever it may be. And that's why the importance of having this conversation. Um, so would you say that in our kind of practical approach, do we need to now switch and focus more on goodness? Do we need to kind of do all three? Do we still have these conversations on what truth is? How, how does this work out practically for us? Uh, you know, what's interesting, Ryan, is um, I think I think there are two kind of atheists. Now, I'm using a paradigm here. These are not exact ideas, but it's a model, if you will. I, I've interacted with two types of atheists. One atheist says, look, you know, it, it wouldn't be a bad thing if God existed. Maybe I would survive the death of my body. Maybe I'd be re reunited with my loved ones. Uh, naturalism is kind of a bleak worldview. But unfortunately, it's just not rational to believe in God. Hmm. Now, on the other hand, and I think probably an example of that would be Graham Oppie, who is a leading academic atheist. Now, I'm not saying Oppie would be necessarily happy, but I've heard Oppie say, I, I just can't consider whatever positives because it's just impossible. It's just not hmm. rational. Now, I'll flip it. And here's another atheist. This is Thomas Nagel, the uh, philosopher of mind at New York University, leading academic philosopher. Uh, Nagel says... No, there is some rational basis for Christianity. In fact, Nagel is very close friends with Alvin Plantica, other leading Christian philosophers. Nagel says, uh, no, there are some, there's a rational basis for Christianity, but you know what? I don't want that God to exist. Hmm. I don't want that God reaching into my life and telling me how to live my life. Yeah. I think there are two atheists. And what I try to do in my book is I think, well, maybe I need to do two things. I need to try to show that Christianity is reasonable, 
but maybe I also need to show that Christianity is good so that people might say, well, maybe I would like Christianity to be true. Yeah, I think that's huge. Well, hey, if this conversation is sounds interesting to you, stick around. This is also a weekly show where I have conversations with different guests discussing these big issues related to Christianity and the Christian worldview, hopefully helping you see that Christianity is true, helping you believe it, be able to defend it, and then faithfully live it out as a follower of Christ. And my guests... As you see there is Professor Ken Samples. He's a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe, a ministry that all of my subscribers, my listeners, my followers should know about. Uh, have a lot of interviews with your team. Love the work that you guys do at Reasons to Believe. And again, we are discussing his new book that just came out, Christianity Cost Examine, looking at the, is Christianity relevant, rational, and good? And so in our conversation today, we're going to be answering those really kind of three big questions. Is it rational? First, is it good and is it relevant? And so, if you have objections, if you want to, if you have um, questions that you want to present, that you want to ask about, that you want to hear thoughts about, please send those in in the live chat, and we'll do our best to get to those. Um, and uh, we are definitely going to jump in. Slam, thank you for being here. Susan says hello to you as well, Professor Samples. She is connected there with the ministry as well. So, one of the first things that we often hear, let's jump in right in is that Christianity is irrational, is this conversation that uh, it's kind of against science, uh, that, that we have science, that's enough. Why do we need Christianity? Uh, what is kind of like, I guess if you what, could explain, like what is, where is this argument maybe coming from? Why is this argument made? Because to me, I go, it makes so much sense how Christianity and science fit together. Where's this argument coming from saying, you know, science is yeah. enough. Science and Christianity are again are, are at odds. Yeah, Ryan, I think that uh, a lot of people have maybe a misperception of science. That is, they think that science operates uh, in a neutral context and has no worldview connections. Mm -hmm. I mean, I meet scientists all the time. And almost the first question I ask them is, why does science work? And it puzzles them, uh, and they often say, I don't know, it just, it just works. But I think there's the impression that science could work in any world. You just follow the rules of science, and it delivers. But in reality, that's not true. You have to have a world that is science-conducive. You have to have human beings that have the cognitive faculties and sensory organs to do it. And you have to have a mathematical, logical congruence between the two. And so the reason science exploded into existence in the 17th century in Europe was the Christian worldview provided all of those necessary beliefs. The world is real. It's good. Human beings have qualities to do it. So in, in one sense, I think people are unaware of both the historical and philosophical connection between Christianity and science. Yeah, I think this is a really good point. And, and I know you've discussed this uh, in other books as well. You've written a, a number of books and I've, I've linked to them below as well. You can find that in the information below. But what, what is unique, if you could explain and kind of tease us out a little bit, what is unique about a Christian worldview that led to science, these ideas that you talked about, the right kind of world, the right kind of human, versus like the paganism of you know, thousands of years ago didn't lead to this kind of scientific discovery that we see in the modern scientific era really influenced by a Christian worldview. Yeah, there's a philosopher and scientist, Stanley Yaki, who's a Catholic thinker. In one of his books, he said that 
science was stillborn in, in various great civilizations because of because of pagan beliefs that were inconsistent with science. And so uh, China, Babylon, Greco-Rome, uh, these ancient civilizations made contributions to science, technology, math. I mean, algebra is an Arabic word, for example. But the problem is, even though these ancient civilization, they uh, started to develop math and science and technology, it was stillborn. And Yaki's thesis is this. You know, if you go into, if you go into uh, Eastern mysticism, you have ideas like uh, reincarnation. Uh, you have uh, ideas like uh, the world is illusory. And so these ideas got in the way of science. What, what Judaism and Christianity provided is the idea that the, the world is not only real, it is, an, it is independent to your mind and mine, but it's a good world. It is a world that comes with namas and lagos. It, it comes with, with laws and logic, and therefore it has patterns and regularity. And so you can do experiments today that you can test tomorrow that will be self-consistent. And so there are many ideas, worldview ideas that come out of Christianity. Again, you can trust logic and, and mathematics. The idea that, that people have uh, cognitive abilities to trace the intelligibility of the world. Uh, and uh, the, the idea that uh, you know, these, world, these ideas can be tested I think the reason why science didn't come sooner, why it emerged in 17th century Europe, which was a Christian civilization after all, was because these science conducive ideas were prevalent to the people. And, and look at all of the great scientists, whether it's Newton, whether it's Galileo, whether it's Pascal, they're almost to a person either Christian or Jewish. So, so science doesn't work independent of worldview ideas. Science is dependent upon a, a world that is conducive and the human mind that is conducive yeah. to science. Yeah. So th the question came in on Instagram wanting to address this, this question about are the arguments for Christianity better than the arguments from naturalism and evolution? And there's a couple different ways I think I want to tease this question out as the interview goes along. But I think the first, I think this can be presented here maybe for the first time in asking the question of what, is there something about naturalism that did not lead to science or has naturalism come after the fact? And so that wasn't really in the picture or were there naturalistic worldviews pre-modern scientific era that for their worldview beliefs didn't lead to science? Or is that an after the fact thing that naturalism has developed in the last few hundred years? Yeah, there is the belief that, uh, and, and it's a counter to what I've just said, some people would, would propose or insist that the Enlightenment produced science, not, not a religious world. It was the Enlightenment that produced science. And the Enlightenment moved away from religious authority and, and you know, anchored itself in ration, human rationality and, and ultimately science. The problem, though, is, Ryan, that the initial Enlightenment thinkers were all religious. And uh, in many ways, I, I think naturalism is kind of picked up and uh, taken the borrowed capital of 
of the Judeo-Christian world. Re remember the, the intellectual firepower that produced the age of revolution, uh, the age of revolution in science. It came out of the medieval universities, you know, places I ever heard of them, Oxford, Cambridge, <laughs> University of Paris. I mean, the I was taught as a young man that the Middle Ages were dark ages. And what I discovered after going back and researching myself is that the Middle Ages were a very intellectual period. And now whether science could have emerged in a worldview that is dedicated to naturalism, I have real, I have real questions. I mean, hmm. if there's no mind behind the universe, then how do you know you can trust your mind? How do you, is it just accidental? Is it just a great miracle that somehow mathematics can be used to understand the natural phenomena of the world? Uh, I mean, how do we know that your mind and my mind is going to evolve to a place where we can track the intelligibility of the world? I, I think in some sense, you know, I've heard the claim that um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Now, right. I don't know that I accept that idea, but if I did, a naturalist worldview is essentially telling me that minds came from the non-mind. Personhood came from the non-person. Rationality came from non-rationality. Now, that sounds like extraordinary claims to me. If God exists and he has an infinite eternal mind, the idea that he would create finite creatures who can reason and think, I don't think that that's a, that's a big leap. Yeah. But I, I think naturalism has a hard time with with rationality, with meaning and with morality. I think yeah. those are very challenging issues. Yeah. Now, I want to come back to that comparison uh, in just a moment. But I think that a question comes in. I, I received a message from a college student just this last week where he's having a friend uh, or conversation with an atheist friend and uh, presented the arguments for God's existence, trying to show that it is rational to believe that God exists. And the response to the cosmological argument was, well, I don't accept that argument because it's not empirical. And I'm curious, what would you say if someone says, well, I don't accept these philosophical arguments for God or these claims of rationality that are more philosophical if it's not empirical? Uh, what would be your response to that? My response is the idea that I should only accept arguments that are empirical is not an empirical idea. It, it, that doesn't come from science. Uh, I, w I was reading Lawrence Krauss, and Lawrence Krauss said that experiment is the ultimate authority. And I said, what what experiment ever taught him that? Where did he ever derive that? What's, what's interesting, and here I'm gonna be a little bit critical. I, I hear uh, scientists, and some of them are top-notch, Stephen Hawking, Lawrence Krauss, et cetera, r r various people, and they kind of poo-poo philosophy, but, they, but then they appeal to secondhand philosophy. You know, the idea that philosophy is dead, that's a philosophical idea. Right. So I only accept things that have come empirically. That's not a, That's not derived empirically. It's self-refuting. And, and that, that was, I think, my response to him. And as I said, well, I, what I would ask in response is, do you think that we can get any truth from philosophy? And to which the response was, well, truth comes from philosophy, but it has to have an experiment to back it up. And so then it's, well, what experiment backed up that statement? Uh, that truth comes from philosophy and experiment. And so um, we have to recognize, right, the, the ways in which we're using these truths. And we're going to say, well, science is the end all be all. Uh, it gives us 
you know, or is the ultimate source of knowledge, there are other things that come from or that we know to be true that are not necessarily scientific. Now, uh, I don't want to spend as much time on this because we have a lot of questions on the goodness, right? And so I do want to get to the goodness of Christianity, but I think there's a couple more things here that I really want to address on the rationality and the topics of science. So if we could just basically kind of go over, um, you talk about in your book, five truths that are not derived scientifically. Uh, so one being logic and mathematical truths. Could you give maybe a brief description of why we can know this is true and this is apart from scientific knowledge? This has preconditions. There, again, uh, I think many people are under the impression that science works without foundational ideas, but but that's not the case. I mean, we don't we don't get mathematical and logical truths through science. We begin with those ideas, yeah, and uh, we appeal to to those particular ideas, and and so uh, again, this idea that. Um, I can only trust the empirical. Well, math and logic are our first principles and and uh, science wouldn't be possible without the truths that are derived mathematically and logically. And so we should we should think of these as the presuppositions to doing science, not things we derive from science. Yeah. You also talk about metaphysical truths are truths that are not derived from science. What do you mean by metaphysical truth? Yeah, th think in terms, uh, in philosophy, we talk about metaphysics, the study of reality. Uh, connected to that would be ontology, the study of being. For example, uh, science assumes but does not prove that you have a mind and I have a mind and, uh, and that there's a real world out there uh, and that the laws that apply to our part of the universe apply to the whole universe. And so we're, we're starting with the idea that there are other minds, that, that there's a real world, and that the, the scientific principles apply to those. So, so again, um, science has a metaphysical and ontological starting point. Um, number three, the third thing that we would be able to understand to be true that's not derived from science you have is ethical truths. Yeah, you know, my, my father was a combat soldier in the Second World War, and so it's kind of led uh, a good bit of my life to reading about the 20th century. And, uh, you know, I've read a lot about these great scientists who developed atomic weapons and the work that they did, and Einstein going to the Allies and saying, you better develop these because if you don't, the Nazis will. But, of course, uh, science can help us to, to derive atomic weapons but science can't tell us whether it would be a good thing to use those weapons to end World War II. And, and so science can't tell us what is, what is good and what is valuable. Uh, and in, in fact, to do good science, you have to follow ethics. Uh, you can't fudge your data. Mm -hmm. you, have to be, you have to be exactingly honest. So there are moral principles that you begin with Science is a remarkable enterprise as long as we recognize it has real limits. Yeah. I like the uh, illustration I often use with my students. And I've heard it. I don't know who I originally heard it from, but asking them the question, is it always wrong to stick a knife into someone? And, and the answer to that is, it was, is no, right? So science can tell us what happens when you cut someone open with a knife. Science will tell you how you're going to bleed and your blood's going to clot and this is the damage that it will do and everything. But it can't tell you if it's wrong. Like if you 
Walking down the street and you stab someone with a knife, that's wrong. If you're a doctor performing surgery, it's not wrong to cut someone open with a knife. And so there's a moral question that is uh, independent of that scientific question of what happens to someone when you cut them with a knife versus should you put the knife in this person, I think is is a helpful uh, thing that I've done with my students before. Now, the fourth thing that you mentioned here, and I think this is sometimes the hardest maybe to explain uh, in a way, is this idea of aesthetic considerations. Uh, what do you mean by aesthetic considerations are truths that are not derived scientifically? Yeah, when we talk about aesthetics, we're talking about beauty. We're talking about the beauty principle. And let, let me let me put it this way. I know many people that would never go to a church, but they love to go to an art gallery. And they find beauty both in nature and they find it uh, in Western civilization, the greatest great artists. I don't know anybody I've ever met who doesn't love some kind of music, classical, popular, whatever it may be. Uh, and yet science isn't able to speak to the aesthetic uh, area. And when we, we start thinking about aesthetics, why do human beings... Uh, have an aesthetic appreciation and why is there so much beauty in the world? From a naturalist point of view, does it help us survive? I don't know that beauty helps us survive, but but hmm. if, if Christianity is true, if the Bible is true, then all of this beauty and the fact that we're beauty-seeking creatures fits. But, but yeah. science can't tell us the nature of the beautiful. Yeah. Lastly, the scientific venture itself. You have to believe that is true before you can even do science. And so science itself, um, the, the scientific method, right? You have to assume it's actually accurate as well. Um, I want to wrap up this kind of idea of science here. And I said I'd come back to it of the, the question that came in on Instagram of how is Christianity a better explanation for naturalism and evolution? Uh, you get five things also in your book. And we're going over a lot of information. Again, Ken Sample's book, um, cross -examine, or Christianity Cross-Examined. It is in the live chat. So, uh, thank you, Slam, for putting the link there. You can click on that and you can, um, you can pick that up right now. But uh, you list five things that Christianity better accounts for than a naturalistic worldview. And so uh, number one, you say, is the cosmos. So could you maybe briefly again explain uh, how does Christianity better account for the cosmos than a naturalistic evolutionary worldview? Yeah, the 20th century cosmology has told us that not only is the universe there, but Big Bang cosmology implies the idea that the universe had a beginning. Now, there, of course, there are people now who propose many worlds hypothesis, the multiverse. Of course, I'd like to see, are there any observations that those universes actually exist? So it, it seems to me Big Bang cosmology comports really well with a biblical idea of creation ex nihilo, that the, that the universe is there, that it was created by God, namas, laws, logos, logic. It has design, regularity, patterns, uh, fine tuning, to the fundamental constants, fine-tuning in our solar system. Even, even Earth itself, for a long time, people thought that it was just kind of a second-hand planet in a, an obscure part in the galaxy. Uh, now there's a book out called Rare Earth, that Earth may be uh, unique. Uh, and I think even, even extending our understanding to other areas of human beings, what I would call, for example, consciousness and human exceptionalism. Um, I think the biblical worldview does a better job of explaining human beings than naturalism does. And, and I'll put it here. Blaise Pascal, who, by the way, was one of those founding fathers of science, 
He's a mathematician, developed probability theory. He, he invented uh, a calculating machine in the 1700s, which some have said was the first step toward a computer. Pascal said human beings are, are both, they're an enigma of, of greatness and wretchedness. Hmm. I think that's true. Human beings are, are different. They are different in kind than the, the animal kingdom. They're exceptional creatures. We show it in our ability to do math, to do logic, to do philosophy, to do science, uh, to create music, uh, even to have uh, uh, symbolic speech. Mortimer Adler, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, said animals don't have conversation. They send signals to one another. Now, um, I, I would say, for example, that uh, the greatness is the image of God. The wretchedness is the fall. I think that given evolutionary naturalism and given evolution, I think humans are both better and worse than what we would predict with evolution. And I think you have to explain how humans are different in kind, and yet they're also uh they're also potentially ruthless. I don't think you need the devil or supernatural to explain the Holocaust. I think mm. human nature can take care of that all by itself. Wow. Your second point that you have here on how Christianity better accounts for what we see than naturalism is of abstract realities. Can you help us understand this yeah. one? You know, all intelligent people, whenever they want to solve a problem, they appeal to this uh, this toolbox uh, this this conceptual toolbox. Whenever we want to figure something out, we appeal to logic, the laws of logic, the law of non-contradiction, law of excluded middle, law of identity. We appeal to mathematical principles. We appeal to universal principles. And so this is kind of a cerebral or an intellectual toolbox. But now the question is, where did that toolbox come from? How did we account for it? Uh, are we to assume, for example, that human beings invented it? I mean, is, is logic and math discovered or invented? I think there are powerful arguments against the idea that it, it is invented. But if God exists and God is an infinite eternal mind, then those logical and mathematical principles flow out of his mind into his creation. Um, again, I think naturalism has a hard time explaining these these abstract principles and these ideas. Uh, Eugene Wigner, a physicist in, in the 1960s, he said, he said, if you're, a, if you're a naturalist, if you're an atheist, mathematics is like a miracle, hmm. a miracle that it would, would actually apply to the physical world. If God exists, then you would expect that human beings would have rational capacities and appeal to logic and science, uh, to philosophy. So I think Christianity does a better job. What would you say is maybe the most common um, approach from a naturalist perspective to explain abstract realities, like things like numbers, like uh, things like truth, things like love? I guess love, you can say chemical reaction in the brain, but what about like a number, like the number two? Uh, how do naturalists explain abstract realities like numbers? Well, they come at it from a couple points of view. One way of, of approaching it would be that this is kind of a consensus, that we have kind of come up with a consensus idea as to these ideas, and, and we've adopted them, and, and we kind of accept them in, in terms of their, their work. Um, 
I don't think, however, that 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 bears itself out. Uh, you know, some of the leading mathematicians would say, and, and in fact, a lot of mathematicians are theists, and they talk about they they talk about the beauty of mathematics, its coherence, it, its universalness. Um, I don't I don't think that mathematics and logic are things we invent because I think you have to know them to even begin to think about them. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, again, it is much preferable to think of them as starting points rather than something we derive uh, through some kind of investigation. Yeah, that's good. Um, all right. So number three, third way in which Christianity better accounts for things than naturalism is the account for moral truths. Now, we've talked about ethical truths uh, being true and not necessarily derived from scientifically. Uh, so maybe kind of focusing on the naturalistic explanation of morality. Why is that not as, um, I guess, not as good in your mind than the Christian view that is better? Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased that most atheists these days believe in some kind of objective morality. And, you know, when they look back and look at some of the uh, terrible things that have happened in the 20th century, they agree that, you know, what Stalin and Mao and Hitler did were were wrong. Uh, of course, my question is, again, if there if, if God exists, it seems clear that these moral principles may be built into the system. And we call that the Imago Dei. But if there is no God and we are the product of blind, mechanistic, accidental processes, I mean, who's who's to say that something is objectively wrong in this kind of context? I think a lot of times people will say things like, well, uh, you know, maybe objective morality, even your belief in God or your idea that there is life after death, those are ideas that were survival conducive. They helped the species survive. Of course, my, my question would be, well, then are those false ideas that evolution produced in our minds? Hmm. Um, it, you know, the idea that human beings have dignity and value and therefore you should not murder them. I don't think you can get that from science. I, I think you can get that only from a revelation and f from a biblical revelation. So yeah. I, I, I think naturalism has difficulty with with grounding morality. Yeah. Yeah. With the grounding, and I, I, you know, I just had this conversation again yesterday with someone. If uh, what about evolutionary explanation of morality? It's like, well, evolution explains what happened. Uh, it doesn't necessarily it's, it's more descriptive than prescriptive. Uh, right. of what should happen, what we should do, kind of what we talked about before with the scientific question. Here's what happens when you cut someone open, but it doesn't tell you whether you should cut them open or not. Here's what happens when you ingest poison. But should I poison someone? You know, that's a very different question than a scientific evolutionary question. Now, uh, the fourth point is human beings that you have already kind of added in, which I think you did a great explanation of Christianity better accounts for human beings than naturalism. Number five, is that Christianity better accounts for religious elements than naturalism? Can you kind of help yeah. us understand what do you mean by religious elements? Yeah, human beings have have been called homo religiosus, the religious man. Um, you know, whether you believe in God or whether you adopt a particular religion, uh, most people still are looking for a philosophy of life. They're they're trying to sketch out meaning and purpose in life. It, it seems that human beings are kind of inherently religious. Uh, you know, and and even if you don't believe in God, you then the environment becomes almost your ultimate reality or politics becomes. It seems that humans 
need something desperately to have ultimate meaning in their life. Um, Again, I think there is a religious impulse. And if we're made in the image of God, if we are made to know God and to live for God, then I think that makes a lot more sense. And uh, even secularism in communism, communism, it struck me as being having almost a religious element connected Mm. to it. All right. Well, um, I think that there's one last thing I, that came in in the chat, and I want to address a listener question. I think it also relates to this because uh, kind of wrapping up this portion of asking the question, is Christianity rational? Before we get into the questions of is Christianity good, uh, often you hear the claim that Christianity is not rational because it holds to miraculous claims, uh, that a naturalistic explanation of some sort of miraculous claim is always going to be better than a supernatural explanation. And so uh, the question that came in from Sterling Cox, thank you, Sterling, for sending this in, uh, where she asked, what is the best evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? And so I'd love if you could kind of answer that. And what is the evidence for Jesus and showing that there's actually good rational reasons to believe this and in not just throwing it out simply because it's a miraculous claim? Yeah. Well, I, I would say, first of all, uh, Jesus was a historical person. I mean, you can take the New Testament documents. Uh, they're the most scrutinized documents in the history of the world, and they still hold up to be historical statements. But uh, Jesus's existence is also grounded in Greek and Roman uh, Jewish scholars who write about him. Now, again, they didn't see the resurrection, but by the end of the first and in the second century, they talk about Christians and they give a description of, uh, of what Christians believed, that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was a, a profound teacher, that he performed miracles. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate and his, his followers say he rose from the dead. So what we get from people who were there who were not Christian is consistent with what the New Testament says about Christianity. Now, what what are some of the evidence? Well, in my book, I talk about 20 pieces of evidence. Let me just pick a couple of them. I I think right at the core of the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, we get kind of a creedal statement. Uh, Paul, the apostle, writes that that Jesus uh, was crucified, that that he died, he was buried that he arose and that he appeared. Well, uh, the empty tomb, uh, we know whose tomb that was. We know the location of of that tomb. Uh, The tomb was empty. Uh, We also have uh, the various appearances of of Jesus to various people. So if you're a naturalist, you'd have to have one theory to explain the empty tomb. Like maybe maybe they went to the wrong tomb, the apostles went to the wrong tomb. But it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Wouldn't he be able to tell him, well, here's the right tomb? But then you'd need another explanation to explain the appearances. Uh, Paul says over 500 people witnessed the resurrection. Then you have the change in the apostles. I mean, the, the group of 12, they're pretty cowardly overall. I mean, when Jesus needs them most, they really, they're not there for him. But then their lives are changed. Let me mention just a couple of them. James, the brother of Jesus. Can can you imagine growing up in the same family with Jesus? James thinks his brother's unbalanced. James thinks his brother is mentally ill. Uh, Only mentally ill people would claim to be God in first century Jewish monotheism. But then James 
sees the resurrected Christ and he becomes the central leader in the book of Acts chapter 15. How about Paul's conversion? Uh, I, I think Paul's conversion is, is extraordinary. He goes from being the greatest enemy of, of uh, the Nazarene movement to becoming its greatest advocate. And uh, I would say, Ryan, you know, I tried to think, what, what, would, a, what would a contemporary uh, example be? I, I think it would probably be maybe Winston Churchill becoming a Nazi or Ronald Reagan becoming a communist, or, or Hitler becoming a Jew. This, this radical transformation. I could add other things, the emergence of the church. I, I have no way of really having a reasonable understanding how Christianity began other than the resurrection. So I, I think that even, even the Jesus Seminar, which is a group of liberal and skeptical and some conservative scholars, I think even they would would accept what we call the, the minimal facts of the resurrection. And so uh, I, I think Christianity is based upon a miracle. But uh, if you don't accept that miracle, then then offer a counter that is viable. I've I've looked at all of the alternative explanations, the naturalistic explanations. Right. And I think I can say fairly that they all fail miserably. <laughs> I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> I know I just I, it's interesting and I, and I wish I could have more face to face conversations with people who who truly hold to these naturalistic explanations, because I find that in often my conversations, it's it's comments on YouTube videos where it's like, no, the naturalistic explanations are better. And then I go, well, in what way or something? And either there's no response or it kind of gets taken off track. And, and I can't just sit down and really, I don't know, have that kind of face-to-face conversation that I would love to have trying to figure out which explanations do you think better fit this evidence? Because I think it, in my mind, it's it's so clearly obvious that unless you assume that the supernatural is not possible, that God doesn't exist, that this really does make the most sense of the historical evidence that we have. And and think back to science. So in the 20th century, scientists tell us that all matter, energy, space, and time had a singular beginning out of or from nothing. Sounds like a miracle to me. Uh, You know, quantum mechanics, scientists look at the realm and they say, it's mysterious. It is, it's difficult. It's challenging. It sounds to me like there are miraculous things, even from science. It isn't just from the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Sterling Cox, thank you so much for sending that in. I hope that helped. Now, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about the objections relating to the goodness of Christianity. Um, There were three objections that kind of were very similar, and it went along with the chapter that you had, and I loved how the objections that came in really went along with this book, and so it really seems like you are addressing the main objections that people are receiving and trying to think through, and again, uh, this is my guest, Kenneth Samples, author of the new book, Christianity Cross-Examined. The link is in the live chat if you guys want to check that out. Um, But it's about your chapter on that Christians don't always act like Jesus. And so two uh, objections that I got from Instagram was, one, Christians are hypocrites. And then two, uh, why, if Christianity is good, is the outcome of Christianity bad? So many Christians do bad things. And I'll save the third one because it's a slightly different, but same kind of theme. Why are Christians often doing so many bad things? Why are they hypocrites if Christianity is true? And we supposedly are filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to do good. 
Yeah, what I think is interesting, Ryan, is that the I think the greatest empirical truth is that we're flawed. I think we see that every day. We're broken. We're flawed people. We have ideals and we don't fulfill them. Where does that idea that uh, humans are fundamentally flawed at the core of their being? It's a biblical truth. There, I think the biblical truth of original sin is confirmed day after day after day after day. Now, Jesus comes along, and of course, he not only preaches the Sermon on the Mount, but according to Houston Smith, one of the great world religion scholar, Houston Smith says the remarkable thing about Jesus is he not only preaches this incredible sermon, but he appears to actually live it. Hmm. He fulfills the Sermon on the Mount. He loves his neighbor as himself. He, he treats people with dignity and, and fairness. Jesus says to his family, I'd love to do this on Thanksgiving or Christmas, tell your family, can any of you point to any fault in my life? I mean, I, I would be laughed out of my family for that. <laughs> but you know what? Not only does Jesus's family, but his apostles and even Pontius Pilate admit, I can't find any flaw in this particular individual. So if you're bothered by the fact that people are broken and fallen, you need to remember that is a biblical truth. And the reason Jesus came into the world is because people are broken. They are fallen. We're not able to pull ourselves out of the slavery to sin. Now, it is true that Christians do bad things, but I think if you want to look at Christianity as a whole, you need to take both the positive and the negative. I think Christianity, I mean, when I was a kid, there, there were these trucks that drove through the neighborhood, you know, Salvation Army, uh, St. Vincent de Paul, the vast majority of, uh, you know, th these groups that reach out to the poor are have Christian orientation. I mean, look at somebody like Mother Teresa. Look at look at various people in church history. So I'm okay with people pointing out that sometimes uh, we find out that ministers uh, get involved with a prostitute or they embezzle funds. I know that that does happen. Yeah. But I would say if you look at the broad context, I mean, uh, Christians have been at the forefront of attempting to end slavery. Uh, Christians are reaching out in, in various moral areas of life. So if you want to judge Christianity, I'm okay with that, but, but be fair. Yeah. And I think that's such a wonderful point is that I think we so, we so quickly can, can look at the bad decisions, the hurtful things that Christians have done and go, see, Christianity is not good. And rather, when you look at the picture and see Christianity is a foundation of science, of education, of the medical care system, of, you know, there's so many good things that Christians have done in bringing people up, you know, human dignity and, and women's dignity and the dignity of slaves and all these kind of people uh, that you go, really, how are we, if we're going to, if we're going to play a weighing game, uh, you know, some pastors do some bad stuff, but, you know, how many pastors stay faithful their entire life, you know, um, that just doesn't make the news as much. And so I think that's good. Now, going off that, and there's, um, man, I guess there's many different ways in which we could spend this. So I don't know exactly. You, I guess you can take it how you want to take it. But one of the things that came in on Instagram that says um, Christians have done bad things was that it says Christianity is bad because it oppresses those in the LGBT, like those in the LGBTQ community by imposing their morality on them. And so would you say this is a 
bad thing that Christians have done? Does this make Christianity bad by us putting our morality on other people? I think what I would say to people who are in the LGBTQ uh, community, I would say that God is an infinite, eternal, and perfectly holy being. And when God presents his morality to human beings, it restricts and restrains all of us. I mean, uh, before I was married, I was a, a healthy male um, and I had temptations, uh, uh, and, but you see Christian morality, biblical morality, it restrains all of us. It restrains me. I'm to be faithful to my wife. If you're a single, uh, heterosexual person, you are to be faithful, uh, to God. So it, it's not just that divine morality somehow restricts people uh, who are in the LGBT community, God's morality restricts all of us. Right. So all of us, and, and since God created us and morality flows from his being, he has the prerogative to come to us and say, here's what I propose to be a fulfilling human flourishing life. Yeah. And I, I think it is important as, as we look at this topic and say, look, yeah, absolutely. Like as Christians, we should be the first to be able to say, look, what that Christian did was bad, right? They they did respond in a negative way. What they did is bad. That should not have happened. But also to try to bring it back, right? So, so understanding the situation and say, okay, did some, you know, what happened here? What was going on? And be able to address the right and the wrong of specific situations that had been taken place. But kind of for us, just addressing kind of the topic of this is something, you know, of, of, uh, oppressing your morality or imposing your morality on other people. The question I would ask in response is, do you always think it's wrong to impose morals on others? Like, you know, if you're, you're talking about murder, you're talking about whatever it may be, aren't there things that you would say are wrong and that we should stop people from doing? And, and there's a, oh yeah, go for it. I, I'll give you uh, just a, uh, an example from my life. Um, I, again, I mentioned my dad was a combat soldier in World War II he was a machine gunner in a rifle company. He was involved in a lot of combat. I remember 40 years after the war ended, right before my dad died, my dad looked me in the eye and he said, son, will God hold me responsible for killing those men in the war? And, uh, you know, I looked my dad in the eye and I said, dad, on your resume, it's going to be stamped. You helped stop the Holocaust. Um, you know, killing is never easy. And the burden my dad carried by killing those German soldiers was very difficult. But do, do, we, do we want the allies to impose their morality on the Nazis and say, you can't butcher people simply because you don't agree with their ethnicity or their people group or their religion? Um, you know, should, should the abolitionists go to the slave owners and say, sorry, I've got to impose my morality? Of course you want your morality to be placed on people who are violating right. uh, these these sacred things. Yeah, you know, and I, I saw just in this last week a, a post on Instagram that was shared uh, about a, a T-shirt that was on sale at the Banana Republic saying "Love equals no boundaries." Uh, you know, this idea that you know there's there's no bounds, and it's like the truth is completely opposite. And you mentioned that of like, because I love my wife, I create boundaries to protect what is good. Because you love your children, you create boundaries to protect them. If you love your kids, you don't go, there's no bounds, play wherever you want, go swim in the pool as a six month old, play out in the street where their cars are coming. I, there's no boundaries because I love you. It's like, it, it, 
it's the complete opposite. And I think we recognize it when we think deeper is that because you love someone, you have boundaries for their protection. Uh, the, the, I think the difficult part with this with this topic is that what we see is the boundary of saying you should not do that because it's bad. We've already presupposed it's not bad. And so therefore, why am I being restricted? Quick story. Um, this idea of God imposing himself. Christopher Hitchens, uh, he said, if God exists, it's like living in North Korea. God's always invading your space. He's always pushing himself. Hmm. Big Brother's always watching you and judging you. Well, that's one perspective. Let me give you St. Augustine's perspective. St. Augustine says, yes, God's always there. Uh, he's there when you're depressed. He, he is closer. He's more a friend than any friend. He is more a lover than, than any lover. He, he's always there, even when you are in agony. Isn't that interesting? God's imposition coming in is viewed as, with Hitchens' idea, it's living in North Korea. With St. Augustine, it is a, a great comfort. God is yeah. always there for you. Yeah, I think that's so good. And, you know, I will link to um, other conversations I've done, right? I've had a whole conversations on homosexuality and, and other moral issues that I think would be very helpful. I'll make them pop up in the corner over there. Uh, I'll put them in the description below after the interview that I think if this is something that you want to dig deeper into on, on the questions revolving um, homosexuality and LGBTQ individuals and morality, uh, you can definitely check those out for the future. Another way in which people say that the Bible is bad, that it's just not good. And so even if you prove to me God exists, um, I would not follow him, is this idea that the Bible never, or I should say, the Bible promotes slavery is one that you hear frequently. And Ken, you even admitted in your book, you said um, that the Bible never calls for the overthrow or the abolition of slavery. And I, and I saw this on a meme once where it was like, of all the things God could have said, like, you should not own slaves. Slavery is bad or something. And the overthrow and abolition of slavery, he decided to go with, you should not eat shrimp. Um, so <laughs> uh, in this idea of why wouldn't the Bible just say, we need to overthrow slavery. It is bad. Let's abolish it. This is a bad thing. Instead, why does it seem like people, why does it seem like it is promoting and uh, approving of slavery? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things that work in this, uh, Ryan. Number one, when people look at the word slave or bondservant in the Old or New Testament, they immediately think of the antebellum South. They, they think of, you know, chattel slavery, where people are imprisoned, they're kidnapped, they're imprisoned. It's for racial reasons. Uh, slavery is for life. When in reality, while slavery was practiced by every culture, every civilization, and so, so the problem of slavery is, is really not a Christian problem or, or even a white problem. It's a human problem. And if you go back to the Old Testament, uh, there were people who were indentured ser servants. Uh, maybe they couldn't uh, make their way financially and they would work for another individual. But that kind of uh, servitude was not because of race. Uh, there were moral principles. The master could not beat or torture the indentured servant. Uh, the servitude was not for life. After six or seven years, they could renegotiate their contract, so to speak. Now, why doesn't the Bible come out and condemn slavery I think because because God looked at the, the long run and the long run was, why is slavery bad? 
Why is it wrong to own other people? Well, why do we think that? Well, because they're human beings, because they have inherent dignity and moral worth. You don't have a right to do that. Well, where do we ground the idea that human beings have dignity and moral worth? Yeah. Well, in yeah. Western civilization, it comes out of the Imago Dei. They're made in the image of God. And I think God was deeply opposed to slavery. And the way he did it was to develop his revelatory truths that would ultimately come to bear on all of these things. And so yeah. uh, the vast majority of the abolitionists were Christians. Civil rights movement, lots of Christians and Jews standing there with Martin Luther King saying you cannot discriminate against people on the basis of their race. And so uh, I would argue that uh, Christians were at the forefront of defending human rights. And I think that this goes back also to the conversation we had in the first part of the interview of uh, this is that the ethical truths are better explained by Christianity uh, or moral truths than a naturalistic view. Because if you want to assume a naturalistic worldview of subjective morality, then why is it wrong to own slaves? Um, if you know, yeah. Think, think of uh, there's a passage in Galatians chapter five. This is so Galatians is written about 47 to 49 A.D. So right in the middle of the, the first century. Paul says in the Christian church, there's no difference between Jew, Gentile, slave free, male or female. They are all one in Christ. That is a revolutionary statement. Now, of course, uh, slavery was practiced in the Roman world. Christians couldn't just, you know, snap their fingers and have slavery overturned. But it was the moral philosophy of Christianity that ultimately succeeded in turning slavery upside down, both both in Europe and in America. Yeah, yeah. Now, what would you say is because I think you, you made or you said uh, this idea that the slaves could go free every seven years. Isn't that just to Hebrew slaves? Isn't there uh, the passage that is normally pointed to that um, for slaves from other nations, they can actually be slaves for life and that the seven year releasing is only when it comes to fellow Hebrew? Yeah, I address this in my book. Uh, if you look if you look carefully at it, even even slaves who were taken, let's say, in warfare between Israel and other other nations, uh, those people were also to be treated with with dignity and respect. In fact, in the Old Testament, a master could be put to death. He could be judged and actually executed if he were to mistreat his slave. And the application of that extended beyond just Hebrew people. Uh, to to people who were alien. Uh, moreover, those people who were uh, who became uh, servants, they could also receive their freedom and and even join the nation of Israel. So I don't think the biblical view about slavery has ever been carefully understood. I think often Ryan people think of slavery antebellum South, right. and they apply that to what they're reading in the Old Testament. Yeah. Now for you, um, does anything change? Because I know you've mentioned old and new. I know that people are talking about like the book of Philemon, that sure seems different than the Old Testament slave laws uh, on a fellow Hebrew slave that's more like an indentured servant. Or are we really talking about the exact same thing, an indentured servant, uh, both in like a book like Philemon, as well as the Old Testament? Or is there a difference in the slavery there? Because it's part of the Roman culture that had a more bad slave uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Bad, you know, uh, culture. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, some people would suggest uh, in Rome, maybe 90% of the people were slaves. So uh, again, I think it's important to recognize that slavery was part of every culture. It is a human problem. But I, I would add this, uh, there were strict moral principles that applied to indentured servitude in the Old Testament. Now, was there a change in the New Testament? In, in a sense, I think that there clearly was. I mean, you would have people who were slaves who would relate to non-slaves, and the non-slaves would turn to their slaves and say, uh, you're my brother, I am committed to you, and so what you, have in, what you have in the Christian church is really a classless society. Uh, I mean, imagine, imagine that statement. No difference, Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male, female. It, it seems to me that's the very principle we have for 2,000 years trying to live out. And it is clearly in the New Testament. And so I think God clearly intended to eliminate the evil of slavery but it had to be done on, on the basis of establishing the dignity of human beings. And again, I don't think you can get that in other worldview moral systems. Yeah. And I mean, this just came to mind because I think like we, we see that played out where you make slavery illegal, but then also now we have sex trafficking and, and like we just go from if we don't establish a foundation of human dignity and human rights that I don't see how we get within a naturalistic framework, right? So this is now good evidence of a Christian view because we see our culture, we see things that are clearly wrong that we can recognize. Um, you know, it's we, we make something illegal or we get you to stop doing X and then you just start doing Y and, and you're still messing up. Like the ultimate goal is point people to Jesus. And it's not saying we remove ourselves from the law. It's not saying we don't try to change laws. We absolutely do. But to get at the root cause, the heart issue, the human dignity and establishing this foundation can can make a more, I think, lasting change than simply, okay, we're done with slavery, but now we're on to sex trafficking and now we're on to, and we just change the way in which we dehumanize people. Yeah, I was talking with a Muslim the other day on, on Twitter, and he said he didn't believe in original sin. So I said, well, then then why don't you stop being selfish? Stop lying. Stop lusting. I mean, I mean, if you don't think human beings are enslaved and broken at the core of their being, then then stop all of these kinds of things. It, it, it seems to me the flaw of human nature is something we see every day, and it's the most confirmed truth of the Bible. Yeah. Human yeah. beings need a savior. Absolutely. Now let's maybe address one more aspect of claiming that Christianity is not good. Um, and then I want to get to just finishing up your final thoughts on relevance since we're running out of time. Uh, but this topic of rape, you, you often hear that the Bible condones rape. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's, you know, if a man rapes a woman, then she, you know, he can pay the bride price and take her as a wife and she has to be with him forever. Uh, rather than, again, coming out very strongly and just saying rape, bad, Here's what needs to happen. Um, so if you could maybe, what is the uh, the better case, I guess? I briefly explained it. What is the case that people try to make that because of rape, the Bible is bad? And how would you respond? Yeah, I, I think the way I would approach it, Ryan, would be this way. I, I think what's very clear in in the New Testament is that Jesus Jesus's approach to women is fundamentally different, not only to the Greeks and the Romans, but even the other Jewish rabbis, 
I mean, Jesus talks to women in public. Jesus doesn't scapegoat them about sexuality. Uh, the first people to see the risen Lord were women. In fact, the two largest people groups to join Christianity uh, in the first century in the Roman Empire were women and slaves, because Jesus looked at them as having dignity and having value and having purpose. In fact, so many women became Christians early on that the Romans thought, is this some kind of feminist movement? <laughs> now, how are we to understand some of these Old Testament ideas? Well, we certainly have a, a patriarchal system. We certainly have an ancient culture uh, that gives great authority to the patriarch and to the family. And there are many factors that relate to uh, a woman's relationship to her husband and things of that nature. But also remember that uh, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, there's, there's real restrictions to a man looking at another man's wife. Uh, and, and so it, it may seem like the ancient biblical world is kind of foreign to our world, but I think all the complaints that people today have about sexual issues uh, Jesus is the ideal individual. Uh, Jesus treats women differently than, than his, his other Hebrews, differently than the Romans and the Greeks. Uh, Jesus, I think, upholds the dignity and the value of, of women. Yeah. Now, I received a comment from a college student this last week. Uh, a friend of his said, look, I tried Christianity. It didn't work for me. And so, you know, it's just not relevant to my life. It's not, it's not part of my, you know, it just didn't work. I'm curious, what would you say? Did someone say, look, I tried it. It didn't work. It's just not for me. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the candor. I mean, I, I think Christians and non-Christians need to have uh, questions. And one of the things, Ryan, I appreciate about you and your ministry is I, th I think you do a really great job of kind of getting at the, the real issues. And so I want to encourage people to listen to your program. Thank you. uh, well, I would say this. Look, uh, you know, there are times where Christianity doesn't seem to work for me. I mean, I, I uh, the idea that I should love my neighbor as myself, that I should be humble, uh, you know, that I should not be selfish, that I, I should not be lustful. I mean, there are a lot of things about Christianity that crowd me, that make my life uh, more difficult. But, but of course, then the question is, what does it mean to not work? Did, do you have an objection that Jesus was the Son of God? Do you have an objection that somehow his crucifixion on the cross somehow made you right with God? What does it mean that Christianity didn't work? Does it, does it mean you had difficulties in living the Christian life? We all do. Does it mean that uh, Christianity constrained you? That happens to all of us. But when I when I look when I look at the issue of hypocrisy, Ryan, I would say this: you know, if you get to know me, it won't take too long to know that I'm flawed, and I might step on your toes, and even Ryan might step on your toes. But you know what? Jesus never will. Jesus was not a hypocrite. Uh, Jesus's whole life is lived out in in his preaching. And I would invite that, that individual maybe to come back and take a deeper look. What, what was it that he thought didn't work? Uh, it, it may be based upon a misunderstanding. Yeah.
Yeah, I think uh, I, I love just now here uh, the way that you responded uh, to that. I, I kind of went at, a, I think, a completely different angle. Uh, so I love hearing what you said. I, did, I kind of said, well, in what sense do you think Christianity is something that should just like work for you? Like, it's almost like treating Christianity like a diet. Like I tried the diet. I didn't lose weight. So ah, it didn't work for me. So I'm going to go try something else rather than treating Christianity something more like math. That is just a fundamental truth that you don't just go, well, I tried math and it didn't work for me. And so I'm, it's like it doesn't doesn't work like that. Math is just true. And, and so you, you follow it or you don't, but if you don't follow math, I mean, life is going to be pretty hard, you know? So, uh, but I, I love the way that you addressed it there too. And so if we could just finish up then, uh, because again, kind of the last objection on this relevance question is, look, the Bible is old. It's outdated. It's 2000 years ago. It doesn't have anything relevant for my life today. Um, so how could you encourage those listening and say, look, what the truths of Christianity are absolutely completely relevant to the situations and the and what you're going through today. Yeah, let me give you a little quick story. Uh, um, Victor Frankel was a, a Jewish psychiatrist who uh, uh, the problem is he was captured by the Nazis uh, and he ended up his wife was murdered, his parents were murdered. He was put in Dachau and Auschwitz, and in order to kind of feel normal. He started psychoanalyzing not only the Nazi guards, but also his fellow inmates. And what he discovered, Ryan, is the Jews were being uh, systematically starved and they were forced to do heavy labor. And what Frankel said was whenever they gave up hope, hope that the Allies would rescue them. I mean, Anne Frank died just a couple of weeks before the Allies liberated her camp or hope that maybe their spouse was still alive or, or hope that God would rescue them. Frankel said that they were living on hope, and when they lost hope, they would fall over dead in just, just moments. What does Christianity have to say? I mean, you know, you, you can live, I don't know, maybe a month or so uh, without food. Maybe on very fortunate circumstances, you could live a few days without water. Um, you know, uh, you can't live too long without oxygen, but you know what? I'd add another to the list. How about hope? Uh, during the pandemic, uh, there were parts of the country where the suicide rate was higher than the COVID rate. Um, I think Christianity offers hope. Let me, let me tell you what Jesus says. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, I can tell you, I've spent a lot of my adult life reading about other religions, Krishna, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad. None of them ever said that. Caesar Augustus never said that. None of our great political leaders. Jesus comes to us and says, if you're burdened and you're weary and you need hope, I can give it to you. I think Christianity appeals to the deepest need of the human Absolutely. heart. Absolutely. I think that is so beautiful. And I think that's a wonderful way to wrap it up. So Professor Kenneth Samples, thank you so much for taking this time and uh, hopefully answering a lot of what well, we did, uh, answering a lot of questions and, and um, helping people understand these big objections raised against the rationality, the, the goodness and the relevance of Christianity. Well, I'm a big fan of yours, Ryan. Keep up the good work. And I appreciate all those listeners with those really fine questions. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So everybody, this again was a conversation on his new book, Christianity Cross-Examined. You can check it out. I link to it below as well as I link to reasons.org where he is a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe. Social media accounts, you can follow him and you can check out that great work. Thank you for being here. Again, if this has been an encouragement for you, I would just love if you helped me out a little bit. If you liked it, you subscribed, you shared it with a family or friend, help spread the word so more people can see that Christianity is something good and beautiful and reasonable to follow and put their faith in Jesus Christ. If there are other uh, conversations, oh, over there, that you want to watch, uh, they're going to come pop up here in a little bit. Other long interviews, other short interviews that you would like to see that can help you grow in specific areas that you're interested in, that you can better defend, know, and faithfully live out the Christian worldview. That is my goal, and that's what we're going to do next week. Boom, right here. The Anatomy of Deconversion with Professor John Marriott, Dr. Marriott, a keys to a lifelong faith in culture and a culture abandoning Christianity. That's the conversation next Friday, 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I will see you guys then. Another fun conversation. Have a wonderful rest of your day and God bless everybody. Bye. I just won't hesitate to follow your love will guide my